G'day and welcome to Museopunks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and I am going to be your host for today's show, but in a lovely joyous moment, I am joined by a co-host for this lovely episode. So Ed Rodley is an experienced designer who has worked in museums for over 25 years. He's currently the Associate Director of Integrated Media at the Peabody Essex Museum. He manages a wide range of media projects with an emphasis on temporary exhibitions and the reinterpretation and reinstallation of PEMS collections. Incorporating emerging digital technologies into museum practice has been a theme throughout his career and he's passionate about the potential of digital technologies to create a more open democratic world. Ed Rodley, welcome to Museopunks. Thanks for having me, Suze. Oh my goodness, it's so lovely to have you. You are one of the people who has, for me, been kind of a lodestar throughout my entire foray into the museum (laughs) technology world. You have directed me and steered me into many good things and good places and we've worked together on a couple of projects. But today I really brought you in. I was, I was captured by a project or, or a, a thought project really that you started mm. doing at the start of this year, which was Museum Challenges 2019. Can you mm. explain what Museum Challenges is? Oh, dear. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, we'll go back to November okay. to start with. Um I had the realization on a very long overnight plane trip that I was not sleeping through um, that everything that I had been going to in terms of um, workshops and conferences and summits and other things uh, in museums were all sort of hovering around the same cluster of ideas of challenges in terms of getting visitors to be interested in and engaged with and involved with museum experiences. Um, And so, you know, feveredly started writing stuff down um, and realized that I would need to write a book to be able to handle all of this stuff because it was just so much going on. Um, You know, when you have one of those flow experiences and suddenly everything in your universe just kind of realigns itself and, oh, this goes with that. And this fits there too. Um, So I spent most of December... Um, working on an idea for what the book should be about. And at the beginning of January, I uh, sort of casually lobbed out into the Twitter sphere just the question to do a little bit of ground truthing. What are other people think are the big challenges up ahead for museums in 2019? And I, I did not expect both the the number and range of responses that I got, nor uh, the amount of passion that was in some of these responses. I mean, it really like hit a nerve with people. Yeah. And I got uh, a couple hundred responses in the course of two days. Um, and of course, none of them were any of the things that I was thinking of. So it was a very useful, uh, useful exercise. So let's talk about some of the responses you got and then talk about what you had been thinking were the challenges and whether sure. that's shifted. What kind of responses mm. did you get? Oh boy, they were they were all over the map. Um, if you name any kind of uh, issue that could potentially uh, impact museums, it was represented. Um, everything from climate change to white supremacy to decolonization, uh, you know, inclusion and equity work uh, to paying staff living wages, um, dealing with the chronic overwork in the sector. Um, 
outdated organizational structures. Um, let's see, what else? Um, the idea that uh, the field tends to reinvent the wheel all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they were, it was an amazing uh, assortment of responses. Um, and, and some of them... One of the reasons I still love Twitter so much, despite all of the bad things that happen on Twitter, is when you have these opportunities to have people who would otherwise never interact with each other uh, riffing on each other's ideas. And so, you know, there were there were lots of sub threads that uh, cascaded down from this original tweet of people engaging with each other on uh, all kinds of issues. You know, there were a lot. The Australians are always well represented in these things for reasons that I still can't quite understand. But uh, there was lots of talk about um, 21st century organizational structures versus traditional museum structures and how we think about the way we do our work. Um, You know, cool, cool stuff that I would never have come across otherwise on my own. Ed, I find it very difficult that there's anything you wouldn't have come across on your own because uh, <laughs> you you tend to do a lot of this wide-ranging thinking yourself. But where had your thoughts been before you started asking other people for their thoughts? Oh, well, <clears throat> um, I had been at an, uh, an event in Greece looking at using emotion in museum experiences as a way to engage people with cultural heritage. Mm. And as I said, on the ride home from that, uh, from that event, I, I realized that everything I'd been to in the last two, two and a half years all boiled down to four elements. Uh, storytelling, immersion, mm-hmm. um, games and gamification, play, fun, what have you, that whole constellation of ideas. And... Oh, emotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and usually whenever I was at one of those events, they would reference, they would name check at least two of the others. So the storytelling event would talk about emotion uh, as well as immersion. And the immersion event would talk about emotion and gamification. And the gaming event would talk about storytelling. Um, and, and realizing there was just this huge thicket of, uh, of concepts that people keep bringing up over and over and over again. As museums need to do a better job of blank making things more immersive, doing better in different kinds of storytelling. Um, so I I started writing this stuff down on the plane and thinking, oh, this is a, this is a really long blog post. Oh, this is like three really long blog posts. <laughs> then finally get to the point of like, oh, th- there is no blog post that can do this justice. Like, well, this has to be something much, much longer that I can spend more time doing the research. And so none of the responses that I got back from the Twitter sphere had anything to do with experience design. <laughs> like people, they were, they wanted to wrestle with much bigger projects. We, you've got these two constellations of ideas now that you're working with. One, which is the constellation of ideas that sounds like it's going to be the basis of a book. Yep. And one, which is the constellation of ideas around museum challenges. Yeah. Are the two related or are they almost two separate thought streams? At the moment, as of like last night at around 6 p.m., I think they are currently separate though related themes mm-hmm. operating on slightly different levels um, and hopefully they will remain that way because I've been trying very hard to uh, narrow down the focus as much as possible to make this a thing that can actually get done in a, in a reasonable period of time yeah uh, I don't want to still be working on this in 15 years right so I think I th- think the larger 
challenges that um, that came up on Twitter are certainly sort of the environment that surrounds um, any kind of museum experience development. But I don't think that's the stuff that I'm going to try to solve. I'm going to let somebody else write that book. Yeah. And in fact, I think the heart of our episode today may be someone who is working on at least some of that problem. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about one specific answer that sure. you got to the blog. Do you want to yeah, yeah. tell me what piqued your interest about this answer? Sure. So um, something that, that happens not infrequently with uh, with me being professionally active on social media is that I will publish something in one realm and I will get responses back in a completely different one. So there are people who, you know, they just don't do Twitter. Uh, they don't read blogs, but somehow something I wrote or said gets to them and they, they find their own way to get back to me. Um, so I, I, uh, a couple of days after the blog post, I got an email uh, that said Jay Rounds. I was like, Jay Rounds? Ooh, why is Jay Rounds emailing me? And uh, his response to my question of what were the biggest challenges for museums in 2019 uh, was this beautiful gem-like little email that just said a surfeit of virtues and then he went on to explain what he meant uh, about museums trying so hard to be all things to all people that they don't manage to be good at doing any of them um, and it was it just sort of went through me like a spear I was like oh that's yeah that's <laughs> he put his finger on something so I I asked him if it would be okay to uh, put it on the blog so other people could respond to it. Um, and then we started having a conversation and then you and I were having a separate conversation and I said, oh boy, it would be great to get Jay on the air talking about this because he's so smart and he has thought so long about change in the museum field. And that's where we are. In the middle of a paradigmatic crisis. In the middle of a paradigmatic crisis, <laughs> indeed. Again. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So... Let's go to our discussion with Jay. For, for those who are not familiar, Jay Rounds is the E. Desmond Lee Professor of Museum Studies Emeritus at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. We have an extended bio from him in just a second so you can find out more about what he's done. But the short answer is Jay is someone who's been thinking very hard about museums for a long time and he has some some wisdom to throw at us can't wait so today we're very excited to have as our guest Jay Rounds. He's the E. Desmond Lee Professor of Museum Studies Emeritus at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and he began his museum career in 1982 as technology curator of the California Science Center and served for five years as executive director of the Los Angeles Conservancy. From 1997 to 2014, he served as the founding director of the Graduate Program in Museum Studies at UMSL and as Founders Professor of Museum Studies from 2014 to 2017. He has written and lectured extensively on American museums and served as a board member of the National Association for Museum Exhibition and as editor of the association's journal, my favorite journal, The Exhibitionist. He has also served as a member of the editorial board of Curator, the Museum Journal, 
Now retired, Frowns was honored with the Distinguished Career Award by the Association of Midwest Museums, and he consults on museum projects, advises graduates of the UMSL Museum Studies Program, and continues a major research project on the history of American museums. And today, he's joining us. Jay, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm very honored by the invitation. Jay, we talked earlier this year about the challenges facing the museum field, and your response really resonated with me. You said that, to your thinking, museums' biggest challenge was a surfeit of virtues. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, There are a number of different ways to think about it, or at least there are different aspects of it. Uh, And probably the basic one is just that people have too much to do working in museums now. Uh, We're all, everybody uh, seemed to be complaining about overwork and I think you uh, expressed it very well in your description of it as being constantly adding but never subtracting. Uh, So it seems like, you know, we just have a huge number uh, of demands on what we should do is the proper way to, to do exhibitions or whatever it is that we think of uh, that we're trying to do. Uh, a good example of this, uh, I think, is uh, a list from the book Reinventing the Museum, which has uh, a list of what I would consider to be virtues uh, called on the list institutional values for the, the reinvented museum. And there are 52, 52 of them. So, you know, if we wanted to realize all of those values for the new reinvented museum, we'd be able to devote a week a year to working on each one of them, uh, (laughs) which uh, wouldn't leave much time for other things as well. I think that it's actually, I would say that there are 53 because I would say that the 53rd one uh, is the making of a list of institutional values that ought to be realized. (laughs) Okay, so one meaning is simply that we're, we all have too much on our plate, but I'm always interested in the why questions about this. We've always been working in a world where there's a lot more uh, that we could be doing than anybody has time to do. Uh, So to me, the underlying question is, why now do we seem to be always adding but not having that ability to be subtracting anything? Uh, What is it that we're missing that would give us a rule that we can use to decide what things we are going to attend to and the things that we can safely ignore without getting attacked by somebody uh, for having ignored them. So the whole idea of the the surfeit of virtues uh, comes back to the problem that normally when we say how do we Uh, when we have more things that we could be doing than we have time to do, we use some kind of rule to make a distinction of uh, the things that we will do and the things that uh, that we won't do. Uh, But we don't seem to have that now in the field now. 
This I find this very interesting. You're sort of talking about additive change without subtractive change, and you mentioned that you're very interested in the why behind things. But what has prompted this kind of mission creep? Is it reflective of broader changes within society at the moment, or is it something specific to museums and the way they're dealing with change? Uh, Both, I think. Uh, Some of it is ideas creeping into museums from other aspects of society, uh, and some of it is uh, specific to museums. I think one of the, well, to me, the basic diagnostic problem uh, behind this is that I feel that Museums as a field have kind of lost their sense of identity. Uh, <laughs> we have, as, as people like Harold Scramstead said uh, a couple of decades ago, that the word museum no longer has the power to refer to any class of institutions that uh, uh, have any you know, kind of common identity. And uh, we used to have a sense of that. If you ask people, what's a museum, people would have been able to give you a good answer 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, Now, uh, we don't seem to have a good answer for that. And the sense of identity is what gives us the basis the rule for making decisions about the things that belong to us and the things that belong to someone else. Uh, where did that come from? Uh, you know, where where are we going with that? Well, eh, there's a lot going on, and uh, something I've been writing a book about for some time. Uh, so, I try to give you the short version here. A uh, key thing is that the idea that crept into the museum field uh, from organizational economics by way of Stephen Weil, uh, a man who I greatly admired, liked a great deal, uh, he was guest in my home, was a very good to my students, uh, but I don't agree with everything he did. And one of the things that I really disagree with was his famous line uh, about a museum can never be its own excuse for being. Uh, hmm. my, mm-hmm. own, my own attitude is that a museum that's not its own excuse for being isn't worthy of the name. Well, what he meant by that, or what that was tied up with, was the idea that museums can only take value from outside themselves. That the value that uh, he said that the museum is just a neutral tool; it has no value in itself. Its only value is from the outcomes, the positive intended outcomes that it creates outside of itself uh, in the broader society. Uh, So essentially that was an attack on the idea of the museum having an identity, having an intrinsic value as a public good. 
uh, in society as being something special, something worth having. Uh, I still believe in that. I still believe that it does. Uh, but what this concept uh, of uh, the museum cannot be its own excuse for being implied was uh, that the only value we can have is from the value of the social issues external to the museum itself that we try to serve. Uh, so once you start doing that, you've got all these virtues out there in society, and you don't have a rule for which ones belong to the museum uh, and which don't. So we get constantly, every time somebody points out, here's another social issue, another social problem that a museum has to address, that keeps getting added and added. And usually, if we would feel like we have too many things to do, the, we would try to use a rule about what are, the one we, what are the ones with the least value? Stop doing those and only do the ones with the highest value. But virtues in society uh, are hard to rank that way. They're all virtuous. And so yeah, who we worry that, uh, yeah, uh, somebody is going to call us for ignoring any one of those. So we feel like we have to serve them all. We're in a time of crisis. I think it would not be overstating it, um, but it's not the first one, right? So I think, uh, according to your reckoning, this is this is no less than our third major paradigmatic shift in recent history. If you define recent as uh, the last two hundred twenty years or so, yeah, that's pretty recent. Uh huh. Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, we see periodically that. Uh, Museums go through this paradigmatic cycle uh, just like other organizations. And if we look back in time, we see a big change happening in museums first uh, in the 1780s with Charles Wilson Peale's Philadelphia Museum being the uh, paradigmatic exemplar of a new type of museum that had distinctive differences than anything that was being done in Europe before. That model was, uh, was dominant in the United States uh, through most of the century. Uh, but by the 1870s, we start to see uh, it being disrespected and people trying to come up with ways to change. But while they are very careful about saying they're not like that old museum, uh, there's something new, they don't really figure out what the new museum is going to be until the late 1890s uh, when the new paradigm starts to form. Again, that new paradigm becomes dominant in the field right up until the late 20th century. Uh, when we start to go back into another period of paradigm crisis, another period of change. But one of the critical things to recognize about that cycle is that you don't simply stop believing in the old paradigm and invent a new one at some point. 
the it's been said that um, the hard part in changing any organization lies not in getting new ideas, but in getting rid of the old ones. You have to go through a long process of getting rid of the old ones and particular kinds of things appear in that process of how you get rid of the old paradigm that are typical not just of museums but all organizations in this time. One of those is as technological ambiguity develops and becomes stronger and stronger, certain things happen, uh, such as the decertification of expertise, uh, a huh. gradual loss of faith uh, in the idea of the paradigm uh, because in a cycle with, you know, the professional class that rules a system like this does so because it's the carrier of the core technology of the paradigm. And if you start to lose faith in the core technology, you start to lose faith in the professional class and their grip on the system starts to fade and other groups then try to start staking their own claim for why they should have the leadership in a new paradigm. Uh, you also uh, get a proliferation of competing ideas about what the new paradigm should be, about what, mm -hmm. in our case, museums should really be doing. And that's really where that surfeit of virtues uh, is coming from. The paradigm provides you with the definition of what the organizational system, the field is there for, what it is supposed to do. And so it gives you the basis for saying what's inside and what's outside uh, the boundaries of your normal operations. But when you're, when you lose the old paradigm and you don't yet have a new paradigm in place, you get huge number of competing uh, kinds of values in that. Uh, in business, this is called the technology cycle. Uh, a good case study of it is in the development of the automobile industry. So in the early days of developing uh, automobiles at the turn of the 20th century, uh, there were hundreds of different manufacturers of cars. And they were using a huge variety of different types of technologies. Uh, some were making internal combustion engines, others were making steam engines, there were electric cars, uh, there were different steering systems, different transmission systems, different startering systems, uh, all of this. So if you learn to use one, uh, one type of car, didn't guarantee that you'd be able to drive another manufacturer's type of car. But as the new paradigm starts to form and the gasoline engine uh, becomes the standard, then you start to narrow the range of options. 
each new technology that's adopted into this, like the electric starter, uh, the transmission systems, uh, each one of these comes to dominate the field, and as it dominates, it squeezes out all of the other contenders. So the process of forming the new paradigm is one of starting from a kind of chaotic proliferation of competing possibilities and narrowing that down into a kind of uniformity that enables uh, the production uh, to improve enormously, that standardizes the interface system for the drivers, uh, that uh, just reduces the variety in a system. And as once the paradigm is formed, then the emphasis switches away from the uh, competition over uh, which system to use to competition and becoming more and more efficient at producing uh, a relatively standardized product. So Jay, that makes me wonder then, thinking through this idea of the surfeit of virtues and its relationship to paradigmatic change, are we then at a point of necessary overcrowding of ideas in order for there to be sort of a, a, a group rethinking about what a museum is and what it needs to be for society, but that this is almost something that will correct itself, that we will start figuring out what ideas we can let go of as we move forward? Is that how a paradigm change sort of resolves? The formation of a new paradigm is a process of emergence. It's a creative act because you eventually get to a point in all the arguing over all of these things where you're, the field is kind of frozen because there are all these conflicting values. It's not a question of uh, just power or uh, anything like that. Uh, it's a question that you cannot do all of the things that you're being told to do, uh, in part just because there are too many of them, but also because a lot of them are in conflict uh, with one another. Uh, and it puts you in a point where it just seems impossible that this, these conflicts could ever get resolved. But what happens then is a creative act that comes out of the field and that is inherently surprising that shows you a way of thinking about how all of these conflicts can actually be resolved in a new way of thinking about the field. Uh, it's not just a slow process of incremental change. It's not like making the Grand Canyon. It's not like Darwinian evolution. Uh, it's this sudden emergence at a point in time where everybody's become so tired of the endless conflict uh, that 
enough people will climb on board with the new idea uh, for it to become the new dominant technology. And then you have to go through a long process of refining the implications of that. It's not a fully fleshed out technology when it first appears, uh, but it has the foundations that people will agree on and change their concept of what's the work we need to do now to figure out the details uh, of this. So that surprising quality of it uh, means that you can't really predict what it's going to be. I don't have any prediction, uh, but I think in the process that we're going through, what we do is progressively define the problem set that a new integrating concept, a new paradigm, would have to solve simultaneously. Jay, uh, in order to become dominant. Will we recognize the change once it's happened? I mean, how do we know when we're through it? Yeah. Uh, how do you know when you're through it? Uh, well, the... Uh, some people don't. Uh, you know, in scientific paradigms, which are probably the most logical of any of the processes, uh, uh, the types of organizations that go through these things. Uh, Thomas Kuhn said that when a new paradigm emerges and starts to dominate the field, that the process of establishing the new paradigm only ends when all the old guys die off. Oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that there's some people who are not going to make the shift, but they become increasingly isolated uh, as uh, people who buy into the new paradigm rush to it, uh, in part because it seems like it now offers a way that we can get back to productive work. It sets the problem that uh, we know what we can do to make our mark to, you know, help develop uh, all this. And uh, uh, so you, you'll always have the people sniping and, uh, as Kuhn said, they will have to die off uh, before you're there. <laughs> uh, but but people, uh, most people will recognize a powerful new idea when it comes. Uh, but, you know, take a look, you know, to be realistic, take a look how long did it take for Darwin's uh, theory of natural selection to become established. Uh, you had to, uh, you know, wait around for Agassiz to die off, uh, all that along the way. But there was a, in a very short time, a major revolution in which uh, his concept of evolution started to sweep over not only the field of biology, but uh, all kinds of other fields as well. So one thing this makes me think of, Jay, is the number of articles and books about museums that have come out in the last 20 years that all follow the format of the blank museum like are, yeah. are these 
attempts at coming up with new paradigms for like the participatory museum, the inclusive museum, the reflexive museum, the convivial museum, fill, fill in the blank. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, everybody uh, wants to advertise their ideas, the new paradigm. And, uh, you know, there's perfectly free to do that. Uh, but it doesn't become a paradigm because somebody said it is. Uh, it has to actually gain the traction in the field uh, before uh, it gets that. But we only get to that point through the competition of ideas that are being spawned. Right. Now, you know, one of the realistic factors in this is that working during one of these periods of paradigm crisis is not all that pleasant <laughs> you know it's uh you you don't really have a way that you can go to work sit down and know what the job is and uh you know just get to doing this because somebody else has a different idea lots of other people have different ideas somebody will attack anything you do uh, it starts to become an act of major bravery to open up any exhibition at all. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's something, one of the things that a paradigm does for us is that it defines what it makes sense to do, uh, what you're going to do when you arrive at work in the morning and that you know that the other people around you will agree that what you're doing is a good thing and that it's uh, contributing to the welfare of the whole, uh, has social value and all that. Uh, so it becomes, the, you know, they're just a lot of problematic aspects uh, a being than this. It's easier to do a job and find it gratifying when you do have a solid paradigm in a field. Uh, on the other hand, there is, during a period of paradigm crisis, incredible opportunity yeah. out there uh, if you can rise to it. Uh, so it's an exciting time in a lot of the ways, but it's not a comfortable uh, time. But I don't think there's any way we can avoid that. You know, yeah. We have to go through the process. It's, it is part of the reality. But I think if we become more conscious of it, one of the things that this enables us to do, and I'm referring now specifically to museums, is to avoid falling into the trap of seeing everything that we want to critique as being evidence that the concept of the museum itself is corrupt, is, uh, is faulty, is responsible for uh, all of the problem uh, kinds of areas. You know, museums are unique types of institutions. Uh, they have a unique kind of role that persists across uh, the paradigm shifts. Uh, but for the most part, they're not unique at all. They're an organization, and they're just like other organizations. And they go through the same kinds of problems 
uh, during a paradigm shift and the tensions that revolve around that as uh, as do any other type of organization that's in the same situation. So one of the things that I am eager to get into people's minds is to make that separation, understand what is going on in the field that can be attributed to the museumness of museums and what has to be attributed simply to the basic problems of organizing concerted action that involves cooperation of a large number of people. And that shows the same symptoms, the same processes, no matter what the job is that's being done. So we can, that, when we make that separation, it gives us a tool for s distinguishing, uh, let me say, that there are things that need to be fixed, uh, but some of them have to do with the fact that it's a museum. Most of them have to do with just the fact that it's an organization. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I mean, so much of my career has been, uh, or has had those moments of wondering, is this really a museum problem or is this just a, a people organizing problem? Um, and I think as a field, we tend to be so inward looking that being able to make that separation, like how, how do you build that capacity in people? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, everybody could do what I do, go do go to the Stanford Business School and do a postdoc in organizational theory. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to uh, understand museums as organizations. You have to learn how to look at them. Uh, yeah. And you have to look outside of our own literature. You commented before about the vast expansion in the literature on museums, museum studies recently. Uh, well, it, you know, that's one of the symptoms of a paradigm crisis. Uh, Thomas Kuhn in uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions said that uh, the explicit attention to theory is symptomatic of a period of paradigm crisis. Uh, you would think that uh, a good healthy paradigm, everybody would be sitting around talking about theory. No, you don't need to if you've got the healthy paradigm because it's answered the fundamental theoretical questions. You don't have to argue over those fundamentals. You just have to sit down and implement. Saves a lot of time. Yeah, uh, and uh, thinking about that when I was first doing my studies of the prisons and museums, that is, uh, I did a study in which I collected all of the references to museums, exhibitions, prisons, reformatories, all that, uh, through the 19th into the uh, early 20th century, around 1920 to 1930. And I graphed all this, and in both fields, you see the exact thing. You see a fairly steady number of articles being published about museums, 
and about prisons uh, through most of the 19th century, uh, and particularly flat if you correct it for the number of new journals that start publishing. Uh, so it's a steady number until you hit to about 1870, and all of a sudden there's a rapid increase uh, that peaks by around eh, 1910, 1915, hmm. uh, when there is vastly more articles being written about both. And then after 1915, 1920, it drops back down uh, to very close to the volume that you were uh, seeing published before then. Uh, so because it was a period of paradigm crisis, there were more arguments, there were more different positions, there were more things being written uh, uh, about it. Uh, once we'd settled into a new paradigm, then that wasn't necessary anymore and the numbers go down again. Uh, so I think, well, one of the other things that struck me about it, because I read all those things, I read, mm. and I have to say uh, that was, for the most part, really boring. Uh, but uh, there were the excitement of seeing the patterns develop everything. But one of the things that struck me always reading all this stuff is I'm reading the same stuff over and over and over again. And yeah. Yeah. You know, why did they have to say that so often? <coughs> well, that crystallized for me one time when I ran across a quotation that was, probably the only thing Richard Nixon ever said that I agreed with. <laughs> uh, Nixon said, when you're sitting and writing a speech and you're writing down the same words that you've said so many times that it makes you feel like if you say it one more time, you're going to puke. <laughs> that that's when people finally get the message. <laughs> you know, establishing that, that new paradigm, we have to hear it over and over and over again. So, Jay, within your own teaching and writing, have you noticed different pressures as you sort of become more aware of the, this paradigmatic crisis? Or, you know, have you seen a shift in, your, in the field even, you know, within within very recent times, within the last decade or so? Yeah, good question. What do you think, Ed? <laughs> well, I'm going to leave this to the Museum of Studies people to talk about. <laughs> uh, I think that there are uh, some shifts taking place. Uh, again, some opening up, like, uh, one of the things, I, I spent a lot of time uh, over the years arguing about outcome-based evaluation, uh, which to me was one of the many names of the devil, uh, because uh, it created an imbalance, uh, things which... I, I, have to explain, I've written a lot about it, so you may have read uh, some of that stuff. Uh, but I think it created an imbalance in the relationship between the museum and the visitor. Uh, and so if I see a shift, I think that it, it is moving toward 
an idea uh, that centers visitors more in the museum, but not in the way that that's usually written about. I see a lot of stuff about the visitor-centered museum, uh, which I don't agree with, uh, because to my mind, they seem to represent uh, the conviction that we need to go study visitors in order to become better at getting them to do what we want them to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what I, I think I'm seeing more of uh, is a shift toward saying, uh, to understand the visitor, we have to understand what they're up to how they make use of the museum for their own purposes. Maybe I just like to think that that shift is there because I've written things <laughs> saying that, and uh, I think I'm getting resonance out of it. But yeah, going back, series of articles starting in 2004, uh, I started uh, this line of argument, and uh, the first article that I wrote about it, uh, Strategies for the Curiosity-Driven Museum Visitor, uh, has now gotten, I think it's 157 citations. The next one was uh, Doing Identity Work in Museum, that's gotten over 200 citations, uh, which in some fields wouldn't be very many, but in museum studies it's still still pretty good. and as I look, look through the things using that, I think I'm seeing more and more uh, of the ideas that are moving away from the idea of the museum as a servant of society attempting to change people so that they become better citizens of the society. Uh, when I started in the field, I, I had had uh, my fill of that Kool Aid. I was, you know, I was in a science museum. I thought, okay, we're there to teach people science uh, because everybody's growing up in a world that's dominated by science, and so they need to become junior scientists uh, in order to cope with it. Uh, but as I actually started observing people in the museum, paying attention what what they were doing, talking with them and that, uh, my perception of it changed uh, a great deal. Uh, I became convinced that uh, you know visitors, it wasn't like the impression that you got from a lot of the literature during that early period of my career, which you'd read that, and it would seem to be saying that there is something about crossing the threshold of a museum that makes people stupid, (laughs) Mm. that things have to be explained to them, they have to be taught to do things which in the rest of their lives are perfectly competent at doing. so I, I tried to, to I tried to move to the question of if we really understood why the visitors are there, what their motivations are for being there, and how they're using the museum, 
uh, in the light of those motivations, we'd find out that they were actually very good at making use of the museum, but that what they were using it for was not the same thing as what we understood that we were creating the exhibits for. Huh. Uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, that first article, the uh, strategies for the curiosity-driven museum visitor, uh, started around from a basic question that people were asking that said, why do people go to all the trouble of coming to a museum and then failing to use the museum in a way that they would get the maximum learning benefit out of it? Why do people only look at 20 to 40 percent of what's in the exhibit? Yeah. Uh, instead of looking at it all thoroughly because you know, we wouldn't have put everything in there if we didn't believe that it was something that they really needed to know. Uh, so uh, my first big shift was thinking, was changing the question from how do we get people to learn what they really need to know to recognizing that most of what we do in museums and most of the uh, way visitation is done is not about learning things that we need to know, but about learning things that we don't need to know. Huh. Mm. If you look at your museum and you ask yourself, seriously, how, what, how much of what it would be possible to learn in this museum do people really need to know if we think about needing to know as having a use that they can put this knowledge to. And I don't see that much. I see lots of stuff that's good to know, uh, that's interesting to know, all that. Um, so I started in that article, I asked the question of, if we say that people are here uh, to maximize the total interest value of their visit to an exhibit, uh, I showed that, in fact, the kind of ping-pong 20 to 40% style of visitation actually had the capacity to optimize the total interest value to the, to the individual visitor. Jay, on that, if someone wants to read these articles or to find more about this work, because I think there's a lot of really rich, dense stuff in this work. I was, in fact, reading a few of these pieces again myself today in preparation for our discussion. Where can they find this work or where can they find um, more about what you've been doing and how to follow up and contact you? First of all, I would uh, recommend... Uh, for the particular line that we've been talking about, uh, uh, the three articles uh, in that series. Uh, there are also articles that are about organizational processes uh, using the organizational theory literature uh, to apply to museums. And I could provide you with a, a list of uh, uh, four or five articles. That would be great. Uh, uh, on that uh, and uh, people who want to contact me uh, you have my email address feel free to post that uh, on the site and I'd be delighted to hear from anybody who, who wants to talk about it Jay that is fantastic well 
thank you so, so much for this fascinating discussion around really paradigmatic change within museums and where we're sitting at this moment in this moment perhaps of crisis it has been absolutely fascinating yeah it has been wonderful to think about the churn that we're living through right now in terms of being uh necessary and not just something you have to fight your way through it i'm actually feeling a little bit optimistic yes we've been in the same position before and we've come out on the other side with a new idea <laughs> yeehaw jay rounds thank you so much for having that conversation ed was it everything you hoped it would be Oh, that and more. I, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to come out of the conversation actually feeling a little bit hopeful. But um, one of the things I appreciate so much about uh, Jay is the, is the breadth and depth of the research he's done over the years. So being able to put this in the context of, yeah, we're having a paradigmatic crisis again, like we have a couple times before. And, yeah, yeah you know, it sucks to live through it, but, you know, we will. And something will come out the other end. Um, and particularly his his pointing out that this is actually also a time of creative freedom. Like if you're if you're thinking about what museums could be, now is the time to start trying to pursue that vision because somebody has to. Yeah, I agree. I also came out with that sense of optimism and hope and also kind of feeling good about the number of challenges that, as you say, it becomes this time for not just creative freedom, but really where ideas and visions of our institutions get to be tested. And I think that's yeah. really important for us if we do yeah. want our sector to be as good as possible and if we do want to move forward in ways that are equitable, are inclusive, that we're doing better than we were doing before, now is a chance we can test that out. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the different models that people come up with. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think we're starting to see some various ones take shape, but mm -hmm. uh, it, mm -hmm. it's interesting to think about maybe where ones might come from that are not yet taking shape. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good reason to get up in the morning. <laughs> I agree completely. So we just spoke about, you know, paradigmatic change and someone with the breadth of the sector and vision for the sector. But you and I have been working on a little project together with a few other collaborators that has none of that sense of longevity. It's incredibly <laughs> uh, short and narrow in its time frame. Do you want to explain what we've been doing? Uh, yes, we, we are. We are both serial obsessives and don't seem to know when to when to stop taking on extra jobs. Oh, I know. Um, but we were both at the Museum Computer Network conference in November, and it was a very fulfilling, intellectually stimulating event. And and at the end of it, there was so much good stuff that happened in terms of conversation and discussion and debate um, that wasn't going to get captured in any way, shape or form that a bunch of us sat down and said, you know, is what could we do to try to grab some of this and hold on to it? Um, and what ended up coming out of that conversation was this, this idea of doing essentially an unproceeding. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most of the work that goes into a traditional conference proceeding, you do all the work that gets published before you actually go to the conference and present the thing and get challenged and 
come away with new ideas as a result of you know presenting the work. Um, so we thought, could we turn that on its head and get people to actually reflect on not what they presented, but what they learned as a result of presenting it and talking to other people? Um, so we put out a call for proposals and we said, we're going to try to do this very quickly. We want to try to launch this thing in soup to nuts and be done in six months. Um, and we got a fair number of people to say like, heck yeah, I want to do this. Yeah. Uh, sign me up. And we're just about there. Yep. It has been such an interesting project. This idea of the unproceedings has led to all kinds of responses that I think we didn't necessarily expect. We've had reflective pieces. We've had case studies. We have conversations around things that people were doing at MCN. We've even got an in-book zine that we are going to try and figure out how to make work. Good stuff. I look forward to seeing it see the light of day. Me too. We have done this with a small band of editors and really from our call, which was in December to now, we're really looking at about four months to turn around uh, a collaborative process that had no plan at the outset. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You you and I have both worked on on projects together, often with experimental forms of publishing. Some years ago, you really drove the Code Words project, which was an experimental form of publishing uh, that took place at that time on Medium. We were trying to think about how we could really exploit the digital qualities of of digital publishing to create something new and experimental and it turns out that people just did really great writing and some of our initial ideas for that (laughs) didn't actually come into play. But it's really nice to think about the flexibility that our digital tools, our collaborative tools give us for these kinds of on-the-side projects that neither of us should have taken on because we had way too many things to do. Yeah, anyway. I mean, it's fascinating what you can do nowadays because while, while this has been going on, I have also been awaiting the publication of a book I have a chapter in that's being, you know, going through the traditional academic publishing model where I wrote this thing in, you know, January 2018 and maybe I'll see the book in September of 2019, I think, maybe. Uh, and this yeah. thing was born in December and we're planning on being able to sell copies by April. And I think, hmm, yeah. publishing might be a little broken. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, something about the responsiveness of this has been incredibly interesting. I also like the unproceedings model. I like the idea of coming out with proceedings that are not done yeah. beforehand, but actually in response to and reflection of a conference that yeah, happened. And I think, I mean, looking at the what the authors contributed, they, we actually managed to, to get there. Like people talked about what happened to them at the conference, not just what they brought with them. And uh, I hope people will find it as exciting as I found it to work on. Yeah. Ed Rodley, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me as guest host today. It was so lovely to have this experience working with you and to get to talk to you on Museopunks. It was a great honor to join you as always, Suze Anderson. I look forward to seeing the whole episode. Uh, can't wait. So Museo Punks is presented by the American Alliance of Museums and you can find us on Twitter at Museo Punks and you can subscribe to the, the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time. 
Hey, one quick thing before you go. That book project that Ed and I were just talking about, well, it's real. It became a book. Humanizing the Digital Unproceedings from the MCN 2018 conference is available for sale on Amazon right now. All proceeds from the sale go to support the MCN 2019 Scholarship Fund.